Welcome to Transformative Talk. Each episode is hosted by a different graduate student in Dr. Haddad's courses at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Join us today as we explore how educators can use critical social theories to transform themselves and their classrooms. Educators can get real and share real life experiences, near misses, and big little wins. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is James Hernandez. And Suzanne Byrne. Uh, your host for this episode of, the, of Transformative Talks. In this episode, we are going to talk about tribal critical race theory and Chicam- Chicana feminism. Uh, we're so honored to be here with our special guest, Rick, from the Decolonized Buffalo YouTube channel, and Dr. Amy Villarreal from Our Lady of the Lake University. So I want to thank you for your time and your expertise, um, you know, and this opportunity to speak with y'all. Um, thank you for the mm-hmm. invitation. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, I guess we're going to start with um, a discussion on uh, Chicana feminism with um, Dr. Villarreal. So would you like to um, maybe introduce yourself and just tell us what uh, what is Chicana feminism? <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm Dr. Aimea Villarreal. I'm originally from Santa Fe, Nuevo Mexico, and I have been here in San Antonio for uh, about six years now. I actually have family in the Rio Grande Valley because my father is from Mission, Texas. And so I kind of bridged these regional cultural landscapes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I am currently the program head. I'm associate professor of the Comparative Mexican-American Studies program at Our Lady of the Lake University. And I was recently appointed the director of the Center for Mexican-American Studies and Research. So now I have two roles, um, directing the program and also the research center. Okay. Um, awesome. Awesome. Um, is there any, um, are there any works that I guess you would like to, to start with or like any, any like main ideas, um, I guess that okay. we can kind of, um, that we can use to like guide the conversation? Okay. Well, I think one of the, um, you know, the questions that you brought up is like, what is Chicana feminism? Mm -hmm. And I think that, of course, that concept is consistently evolving. And um, we think about it now in terms of intersectional Chicana feminism, or even Chicana feminisms. And uh, that kind of overlaps with uh, Latinx or Latina feminisms, right from other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. And so um, it's kind of a very broad landscape now, um, but definitely situated in its roots uh, in the Chicana, Chicano, Chicanex movement and um, kind of the ideological and political resistant um, movements that were occurring at the time and the place of Chicanas within those movements and the writings, right, that emerged um, from that heady political moment uh, that continue to inform our work as it is applied, as these theories continue to be applied and used in different ways um, and in different fields. So I would say that it's a very capacious uh, term and it's a very uh, capacious field of study. So there's a lot that can be talked about uh, when we're talking about Chicana feminism. Okay. Oh, something that uh, came up during uh, during our discussions uh, in, in in class 
was the idea of, of Chicana or, or Chicano as like a self-label or a label that's put on other people? Like, is it a mm-hmm. chosen label um, or, or, if it, or, or is it a sign? Because there, there's... Uh, there was an issue not well i guess not an issue but just like kind of a uh you know pe- people assumed i was like chicano like in class or even in mainstream but i, I t- they're surprised and i'm like no i don't really identify with that you know i i i consider myself more like like native or you know uh, or indigenous or indigenous american but even sometimes i mean very rarely like hispanic would be okay but typically typically i don't like that on on me but mm-hmm. um so so what, uh, I, I guess, what is the, is it a choice or is it like, is it something that we can assign to people? Okay. Well, uh, the first thing that we have to kind of get grounded in is the notion, and I always tell my students this, if you learn anything in my class, learn this. <laughs> uh, Chicana, Chicano, Chicanex is a political identity. It's okay. not necessarily an ethnicity. And it has been used kind of that way as an, as an ethnic grouping, um, but it's more of a, a politics, right, as where you situate yourself um, regarding, you know, your identity, but also your, your political commitments. And it's a self-naming political project. It's ideological and resistant. And of course, um, Chicanex, Chicana, Chicano, uh, remains inflected and also points back to its emergence in the Chicano movement, right, of the mm-hmm. 1960s and 70s to signify self-determination, also kind of working class origins, reclaiming of indigeneity, um, and also the critique of social relations of power, right, that mm-hmm. have um, oppressed Mexican-American communities, indigenous communities, and so its roots are in that resisting moment, right? Okay. And so it's your relationship to that history, it's mm-hmm. your relationship to your community, and mm-hmm. it's your position in terms of how you um, are positioning yourself in terms of the political landscape that we're living in today, right? Okay. And so it is about... Um, a, as I said before, a political identity. So mm-hmm. I think it's definitely something that people come to as a coming to consciousness. And you do not have to be Mexican American to claim yourself as Chicana Chicano. In fact, okay. many Central Americans have claimed that identity as well. And Native people too have, cl- have claimed uh, the identity of Chicana Chicanex Chicano. And so I think that it is um, definitely rooted in a political movement and that that has certain conditions if people who uh, aren't comfortable with the term may not be comfortable with the political stance okay okay and that's okay mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. and i definitely don't think that i think that it's definitely not a term that can be put upon somebody mm-hmm. necessarily even though we might say oh it is a bunch of chicanos here or you know or she's mm-hmm. chicana and I think uh, identities are always situational, right? Mm-hmm. And we use our identities to wield power, right, in different contexts. And um, so I think that you can use Chicana and Latina, you know, in different contexts and your different roles, right? 
Um, so I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, and, you know, I don't think that, you know, so if somebody, if you call somebody Chicana, Chicana, Chicano, Chicanex, and they say, oh, I'm not that, well, then you know, right? <laughs> and that's right. okay. Um, but I definitely think that it is um, to assert a gendered, racial, ethnic, class, and cultural identity in opposition to Anglo-American hegemony, right? Mm -hmm. And um, any state-sponsored violence, right, that has been enacted against uh, our communities. Mm -hmm. And I think um, another important element here is uh, our ancestors, right, of knowing your history and of reclaiming that history and of continuous learning and remaking and coming to consciousness is not an event, it's a process, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so um, we have been de-indigenized, right? As people who have been detribalized, but that does not mean that we're not indigenous. And so we have still connections that can be recuperated and rematriated, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> to our communities. And I think that, um, that's a very important part part of Chicanidad. Okay. Mm. okay. So that's it in a nutshell. Okay. <laughs> awesome, <laughs> that was awesome. a lot, right? Okay. Um, lot. I guess uh, Rick, have you? Do you want to? Do you have any any questions or? Well, I have a lot of comments and questions, but I think I'm going to just wait until the cr tribal critical race theory to jump in. Okay, so there was. Um, let me see. Let me let me refer back to my questions. There, I, I do want to eventually refer to um, the Carderon article. Um, I think uh, Dolores Carderon, uh, 2014, the anti-colonial uh, methodologies in education, embodying landed indigeneity in Chicana feminism. I mean, when I think of feminism, you know, I think of you know, um, you know, women. Uh, women empowerment um, and of course all the ways that have come with it as far as like voting as far as um, you know job opportunities um, political opportunities but then but then when Chicana feminism like is combined and to me in, in my mind it seems almost like it's they're antithetical to to each other um, I guess can you speak to some of the like those ambiguities that do exist and you know how do they how do they speak to that that anti-colonial or decolonial um, framework that that I, I hope mm -hmm. that we're working towards. I don't know if that mm -hmm. kind of made sense. Mm -hmm. So since uh, you know we're we're going to talk about, I, I guess you could talk about various theorists. You know, um, especially say I think the one that speaks to religion most would be Gloria Saldua. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, thinking through and also exploding right categories mm -hmm. and trying to create. Um, a third space, right, for Chicanas to exist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and the reason why Gloria and Saldua create, you know, we're thinking about this third space, this dynamic space of fluidity where oppositions, you know, you have to be comfortable with these oppositions, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not necessarily comfortable, but critique them and contest them in order mm -hmm. to explode these categories um, and to be in this constant state of Nepantla. Right of ever changing, right, and so um, when we think about religion, what Chicana feminists are trying to do is get out of a binary, 
and that binary is the virgin whore dichotomy right mm -hmm. so um the idea that you know comes from western christianity basically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that uh there's gender binaries and that they're very locked of course that's not the case but also that there are good women and good mm -hmm. women are associated with um the virgin of guadalupe or mm -hmm. the virgin mary okay and they are you know there's this cult of virginity associated with that is this idea of purity of submissiveness of uh suffering and of being immobile mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and on the other side of that okay if you're not fitting within the category of daughter good daughter mother <laughs> virgin mm -hmm. wife mm -hmm. um then and you're out in the streets you know causing trouble starting organizing working <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. having sexual relations outside of marriage, then you're defined in this other category of the bad woman, right? Mm -hmm. So what Chicanas are trying to do is get out of that bind. And many of them, you know, like Esther Hernandez, we're doing it, to, we're doing it through the arts mm -hmm. by think, rethinking um, these different icons that have kind of placed Chicana. So the idea of la malinche, right, of being a traitor, to, mm -hmm. to your culture, to your race, or to your gender, or to the movement for being a feminist. Okay, mm -hmm. um, the, mm -hmm. the concept of being a malinchista, right, a traitor. And mm -hmm. who was Malinche? Right, she served as the translator, right, for Cortes um, mm -hmm. during the conquest of uh, Mexico, right, of um, the Mexica. Mm -hmm. So that's one icon. The other icon is La Llorona, okay, mm -hmm. which is the suffering woman the scorned woman, right? And then the other icon is the Virgin of Guadalupe or the Virgin Mary. So you have those three icons, right, that Chicana feminists have been, you know, working with and contesting. And I think um, as far as the spiritual aspect, uh, Chicanas have been trying to find a way out of, um, you know, this Marianismo and trying to find a more uh, empowering spirituality that also reclaims their indigenous roots and indigenous spiritualities like curanderismo, right? Like um, the different spiritual traditions um, that their grandmothers, our grandmothers, right? And mothers and aunts, tias and other people in our family have practiced and kind of blended, right? With Catholicism or other Christianities. So um, Chicanas are, are really trying to find, it's an authentic search, right? For mm -hmm, wholeness, mm -hmm. for fullness, um, for spirituality, for transcendence, right? Um, that is trying to work through, right? Mm -hmm. um, these really heavily laden gendered constructs that have confined us, right? Within these categories. Mm -hmm. So that's, kind of my answer for the religion mm -hmm. and we always want to make a distinction right between religion which are doctrines mm -hmm. practices liturgies texts right. and from you know the western concept of religion um and what it means to be a religious person means to follow a doctrine right um but 
spirituality is something else, right? Spirituality is that search for fullness, right? That search for um, transcendence that can be part of the of religion, right? Of course, it's part of religion, but it doesn't necessarily have to be attached, right, to um, you know bounded tenets or texts or doctrines. So okay. Okay. that's my short answer for. Um, the religious mm-hmm. component. Mm-hmm. And then the other question you had was referring to um, Chicana's relationship with the women's movement, yes? Yes, yes. Okay. So um, originally, you know, during the 1960s and 70s, particularly in the 70s, um, Chicana feminism is often thought of as being resistant or to the Chicano movement and its nationalism. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the story, yes. But that also leaves Chicanas out of the greater, I mean, the broader movement, which was the Chicana Chicano movement. And of course, they participated in that and were instrumental to that movement. So what Chicanas were doing was double activism. They were participating in the broader Chicano movement along with men and, you know, a broader coalition of people. And they were also designing their own Chicana feminist space. Um, because they were also felt excluded from that broader women's movement that did not um, pay attention necessarily to the intersections of race, class, and ability, um, language, ethnicity, all these other forms of oppression that intersect with gender. And so Chicanas and African-Americans, Black feminists, um, were trying to bring that back in, right? And consider how gender intersects with race, class, and other forms of oppression. And I think that that's where Chicanas situated their work, right? So they're always doing double work, double mm-hmm. activism. And um, because we've not necessarily fit within the women's movement, it's not that we're not aligned with its liberal goals, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> of voting. Mm-hmm. And, having jobs, mm-hmm. um, but that women in the lower classes have always worked, mm-hmm. right? Um, that, you know, choice around abortion has, you know, we've never really have choices. Like our choices are very limited. Um, how can we talk about choice, you know, in a context where you don't have very many? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's about the specificity of the Chicana experience, right? And so I think that that's um, kind of how I would answer that question yeah. in relation to the women's movement. That that's kind of when I um, I have very very limited knowledge of, of of you know Chicana feminism, but one thing I guess two of the words that come up for me, uh, one of them I mentioned earlier was ambiguity, and the other one is like nuance. It's always very, mm-hmm. uh, it's almost ultra specific. It's it, it for me for my mind it's like it's too specific mm-hmm. to almost label. I don't know if that makes sense. Like it's like it, it's it's treating it's treating um, and not not just women but just people in general as there's so many nuances to a person. That the only way to really know them is to almost have a personal relationship with them. Like it's it, it is very interesting, but at the same time, it's you know there also has to be a, a movement or a combined identity. And so um, I really do appreciate you know that aspect of Chicana feminism, but also the it's hard to focus on one thing, 
And and I guess I wanted to bring up um, the the Borderlands concept um, that I think originally who coined it was I think was it Anzaldúa, a Gloria Anzaldúa? Yes. Well, oh, right. uh, you know, there's different. I guess what you could say ramas, right, or mm-hmm. areas of Borderlands theory mm-hmm. or a genealogy. But when we are thinking in terms of Chicana feminist thought, definitely Borderlands is that, um, you know, pinnacle moment. Mm-hmm. And of course, Gloria Anzaldúa's idea of Borderlands is not just a geographical space mm-hmm. or international mm-hmm. boundary, but actually a metaphor, right, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. any time that that different cultures and systems clash, overlap, mm-hmm. coalesce, um, collide, right, and form something new, right, is is not just necessarily in relation to a geographical space, but any kind of social space, um, a metaphor for constant change, that in-betweenness, right, that Nepantla experience of in-betweenness, Mm-hmm. And also a place to think from, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, border border thinking, right? So she develops her theory, both of Chicana feminism, third space feminism, and borderlands, because she, she's situated in a particular place, and it's on the U.S. side, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> of the U.S.-Mexico divide. And I think she's pretty clear about that. Um, but I think that that is a place to think from, you know. Mm-hmm. And Sherry Moraga adds to that by saying that um, she talks about the theory in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Theory in the flesh, which means that, you know, we have often separated this idea of academic knowledge mm-hmm. or scholarship from per- people's personal experiences. Like you said, it's very specific or personal. <laughs> But what uh, Chicana feminists were doing was putting those two things together, that actually our personal experiences form our theories. Mm -hmm. That's the groundwork that we're doing. That's the place where we think from. Mm -hmm. That's where we generate our um, concepts and frameworks and interpretations of the world. And so that's theory in the flesh. We make Mm -hmm. our theories through our experience through our very visceral experience of mm-hmm. racism, gender oppression, and um, you know other forms of, um, of oppression that we are having to negotiate. And so I think that you know, while border, Borderlands was so effective for that reason, mm-hmm. not only was it situated knowledge, theory in the flesh, but it had this expansive way of being able to travel, right? Mm-hmm. to different um, contexts to be applied in different ways. And um, I think that's the beauty of it and why it's been so um, influential right, in many different fields today. Is it possible to, to have the theory of the flesh exist in academia um, and, and eventually expand into, I guess, into mainstream thought? And one of the things I'm, I'm looking at right now is the... Um, uh, Delgado Bernal's work um, and on on shared vulnerability. I think she she mentioned mm-hmm. shared vulnerability and uh, being a it being a source of cultural intuition. So, uh, what ways do specifically like Chicana feminists in academia? 
how, how do they enact that shared vulnerability? Like, is it possible or is it using, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be using that third space or is it even becoming more common in, um, in academia to, to consider that, um, the theory, the theory in the flesh, um, like acceptable, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like that question and the idea of shared vulnerabilities because as people of color enter into academia, you are very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, you know, going through different, uh, a PhD program, it was like susto. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm still recovering from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not pleasant. <laughs> That's a common, um, that's a common story. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's not that the academic work is, is, is impossible. Of course not. It's, it's, that's the easy part. Mm-hmm. It's the social dynamics. Yeah. Of I, being in colonized space on settler time. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, um, and also with very few other people of color to um, bond with. Mm-hmm. And other, and very few faculty of color to mentor you and guide you, mm-hmm. you know, through this landmine, right? right? Right. I mean, it's it's a it's a process. It's a weeding process that's supposed to eat you up. You are the weed in that space. Um, academia is not supposed to. Um, it's not meant for us. It wasn't created for us. Right? In fact, it was meant to destroy us. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I think so. Um, Finding your third space, you know, within academia is a, is a project, right, that's really heavy and a, a difficult one, but also not impossible. Uh, we do get through and we get through with our mentors, right, who are usually women of color right. Um, right. and with our colleagues who support us, who are usually mm-hmm. other people of color maybe in our programs or other programs and relying on our spiritual resources and resiliency that have come from the, the years of struggle right mm-hmm. of our ancestors and of our communities and our only and our families that have prepared us for this you know and really dig into digging into those spiritual and cultural resources that we bring with us and i think as educators what we're trying to do in decolonizing education or creating these third spaces is to bring out, right, and help our students to recognize, you know, the conditions of unfreedom in which we live and also be able to use a language and also a praxis of contesting them while validating our own histories, our own experiences, um, our own knowledge that we bring from home, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that that constellation, right, would be a decolonizing education, mm-hmm. you know, um, a, 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 an education for change, right? So um, I think that these spaces are being forged all the time, you know, so that we can survive mm-hmm. <laughs> in yes. these spaces. But not only that, but thrive. Right, you know? right and also advance knowledge and share knowledge. And that advancing of knowledge comes from the sharing, that shared vulnerability, like you said. Okay, so my question for both of you is, um, Ladson Billings requested that 
we start using the term educational debt rather than achievement gap um, so that the language shows what's really going on rather than putting the guilt onto students that they're failing to achieve acknowledging that debt. I've been wondering, um, in indigenous cultures, I keep thinking about this idea that, you know, we use this term illegal aliens, right? Only to recur, only for Mexican immigrants, right? No one else, only Mexican immigrants are illegal aliens. No Canadian ever gets considered an illegal alien. Um, and I think about the word reservation and that indigenous peoples are put on a reservation and that is their home. And when I think about that in terms of the Ladson Billings flip in language, I think, is there something when, you, if you are on a reservation, what do you call that land that is not part of the reservation? And is there something inherent in calling it a reservation as if it was a gift that was reserved for you when in fact it was your land that was the only parcel left unconquered, essentially? So is there is there a word that we could use to better capture what's really going on and the idea that land was here, that that land was here, that land does not belong to the European illegal aliens who came and killed everyone or killed many people that were on it and then reserved that little parcel that they didn't um, take over. Well, first, I, I want to refer to my uh, colleague, um, to answer first, uh, and then I will chime in. Okay. Okay. So let me introduce myself. So I'm Rick. Mm -hmm. um, I'm Comanche. So when I, as I talk stuff in the future, I think people need to realize that I was actually born in Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. And I came here as an undocumented immigrant. So it's kind of weird living my first part of my life as a, as an undocumented immigrant and being native at the same time. Right, mm -hmm. so people say, "How does that happen?" It fucking happens, dude. Right, so <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's it's fucking weird. Like yeah. how how I can be a Comanche, part of a federally recognized tribe, and be an and you know an undocumented person. You know, you know. So I talk about this on my podcast. I think it's a podcast about immigration. I talk about my experiences, so I don't, I don't have to like talk about it here. But um, when it comes to reservations, people have to realize that the reservations came out of like the treaty era, right? Oh. Mm -hmm. Before I continue, um, so I have a master's degree in uh, Native American law from OU. So there you go. But you know, so that's, <laughs> the, <laughs> you have you have a lot yeah. more experience. But that's yeah. yeah that's I, your I, academic, I run a yeah. podcast. Yeah. you know, and to talk about it's decolonial evil. theories. You know what I'm saying? So I can we can criticize colonial theories and you know to make you know decolonization happen. And I think. Um, through not just through an indigenous, you know, indigenous per perspective, but also from a black LGBT. So we have several hosts on our on our podcast that are different backgrounds, you know. So we can build bridges towards decolonization. So uh, I think when it comes to reservations, the reservations came during the treaty era, where the U.S. tried to um, take over land through treaties, and they put specific areas like this is your land you stay here and we'll stay here right so but you know and that's how you know treaties came about but um and reservations but then like the current model of reservations you know like how they look like now it's not how they look like back when it first started there was, there was a whole allotment period you know 
where they actually cut down the reservation and then they had blood quantum to, you know, allot the land towards, you know, different um, individuals and, you know, to, to assimilate. But I think <clears throat> what I like now about the grassroots is that um, they're doing like land acknowledgement, but at the same time, I feel that's becoming trendy and people don't mm-hmm. realize mm-hmm. that land acknowledgement what's the root behind that is our sovereignty. So like people think that the government, the US government gave us sovereignty, right? Like the sovereignty to make our own gov- tribal governments, our own leadership, our own laws. But that's not the true. In these treaties itself, it says that we had sovereignty be- before the Europeans came. So what the American government did was legitimize themselves through these treaties. So, so it's not them, us being legitimized by the government. It's them being legitimized by us, mm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think um, the, the, the places that are not reservation lands are still native land. It's still colonized lands. And people are, you know, in grassroots or people are, are starting to acknowledge that. But if they acknowledge these, these, that the, these are native lands, they have to acknowledge our sovereignty in the same time. And I just say, oh, I acknowledge this to be, you know, Comanche lands. No, but our sovereignty to over these lands, to make laws to, for the land, for the people. It's not just like, oh, the Comanches were here. Okay, let's keep going. No, man, like, you know, like, let's acknowledge that we, we, should, we have the right to make laws over these lands. And I think people felt to see that. But I think, to answer your question, yeah, land acknowledgement is where people acknowledge outside the reservation areas, you know, like... Could I add something yeah. to my colleagues? Um, yeah, of course. I, I think that what he's talking about in terms of sovereignty is a really important point. And um, also that there are multiple territorialities and also colonialities, right, within one given space. So when I think about my homeland, New Mexico, which is Indian country, and uh, our Terry's heritage, um, the, these are not necessarily, these, our communities aren't reservations, right? They are, we're basically on our original homeland, but, you know, the, the whole United States is our original homeland is, but, um, that there's multiple colonialities. So we're first colonized, of course, we're colonized by Span, the Spanish and then Mexican and under these systems of, um, what they call checkerboard ownership or indirect rule or the repartimiento um, in which indigenous people were granted land and also people who had been taken from their tribes as slaves and, or as servants in Spanish and Mexican households and then given land right outside to be buffer communities against um, Apaches or Comanches or other people who were trying to, um, well, needed to also raid the center and had every right to raid the center and its resources. Uh, but the uh, Caniceros, for example, um, were granted land, right? And so it, we have this other layer of colonialism that comes with the U.S. involvement in um, tribal territories, right, in New Mexico. And so we have two layers of that, um, which he talks about the reservation system. But... Um, Many Pueblo people don't consider their homelands as reservations. Um, maybe Spanish land grants first, you know, that idea, but as our original homeland, sites of emergence, right, and places um, that are where we have our ancestral roots. Uh, so 
I think that it's a complex idea, you know, the idea of the reservation. We could say that the entirety of the United States is native land. It is. And yes, of course. Yes, the entire... <laughs> the whole continent. The whole, yes. two continents, the whole, continent. the whole world? No. Yeah. <laughs> the entire I mean, continent. It is yeah. other places in the world, of course. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, I was kind of joking, but when I said I'm like, actually, yeah, kind of the whole world, I mean... Uh, yeah. You know? Go and ahead. then sorry, this other idea of, like, n native lands and then being granted sovereignty, is, is that idea of dividing up land... Um, no, I think uh, I, that's, not, that's not that dividing up land. That's um, that's what I, my question was going towards. Is like in indigenous culture, like is there a concept that land has individual ownership at all, or only communal ownership? So is the very idea of creating these divide division lines and borders, um, I guess the words antithetical to uh, indigenous mindset and like how? The belief systems operate like is that itself like the idea of putting down borders and saying here's the reservation here's this parcel that you can use for this is that itself a part of or an effect of colonization i think um borders are a especially on this continent are european construct i yep. think a lot of tribes like their borders you can say you know were like or their you know boundaries were like overlapping even before Europeans, mm -hmm. and even now, like some tribes share reservations, right? Because the, the mm -hmm. government put them mm -hmm. together, right? So I think, you know, we, in order to like decolonize, we have to realize that and not be like, this is my land, this is not your land. And then there's whole like this whole like forced migrations by like, the trail cheers that put a lot of, you know, um, natives from the south into Oklahoma. Now they're in Oklahoma, right? I think, you know, mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that and not be like, you know, mimicking European ways. Exactly. Yeah. yeah that, I think mm -hmm. that that's the whole notion of, of indigenous people, in fact, uh, as a conglomerate <laughs> that doesn't recognize the broad diversity and in individual histories and stories and um, ethnic groups and diversity of ways of life and ways of relating to the land and territorialities, this broad diversity, you know, over time. Mm -hmm. And that could be just looked at in our linguistic diversity, which was unprecedented throughout the world, which means we have very old communities, right, for languages to diversify to that extent. Um, but also that, that there was, you know, these languages weren't necessarily mutually intelligible, right? And so that means there were very diverse communities, yeah. and and there were uh, peoples who um, migrated right consistently, you know, to different territories seasonally, and there were grand city states, right, with uh, rulers and disciplinary tactics and and um, you know wars of, of territory against other tribes, which we could think of as you know the the Mexica. Right or you know Mayan civilizations, so we have kind of we have small village level societies too, and fishing village level societies and island societies. <laughs> so I think that um, we can never uh, generalize right about native uh, concepts of land and territory um, and how people use the land. So I think that. Um, you know, the idea of ownership, like my colleague said, is a European boundaries, 
um, is, is a European concept and also time. I mean, this is set, we're living a settler time right now. And the settler time is lineal. Right? It begins at one point and is going towards the future. And that's not really um, how a lot of indigenous communities think about their own histories and time. We'll be back after the break to continue our discussion with special guest Rick from the Decolonized Buffalo YouTube channel and Dr. Villarreal from Our Lady of the Lake University here in San Antonio. Welcome back to this week's Transformative Talk. I'm James Hernandez. And Suzanne Byrne. Uh, your host for, um, for this podcast. And so we are going to um, we're gonna, uh, continue with, uh, with, our, with our discussion on Chicana feminism, and then we're going to begin uh, speaking about uh, the tribal critical race theory and how they, uh, and how they speak to each other. Um, so we have our guests, um, Rick and uh, Dr. Aime Villarreal. And so where, where do we want to start with this? The tribal, the introducing tribal critical race theory. So, okay. well, over, over the break, we had a question, um, my question, being, being a colonizer representer here. Okay. Re- representing oh, representing no. the Europeans. Get out. No. Yeah. <laughs> representing those European aliens, um, <laughs> those il- illegal European aliens. Um, oh, my gosh. Well, right. they're not illegal. They made up the, the laws, so they made themselves legal. But if we go by sovereign law, they're, they're, fucking they're legal. legal. Did you oh, guys okay. oh, there you yeah, go. Sovereign see? law. There, there you okay. go. Like they are, they are, we are. E- I'm an illegal European immigrant. Oh, my goodness. Dr. Right. Viaria, are you, are you here? Yes, I Okay, am. just double checking. Okay, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to me, when just reading these articles, as you know, someone naive to these theories, these are very new to me, um, I see a lot of overlap between the... Um, tribal critical race theory and Chicana feminism. To me, they, they look very similar in some ways, and it looks to me from the outside like Chicana feminism is almost building off of tribal critical race theory and adding on this other layer that not only you know are we this identity, but we have many identities. How do these two theories really stand apart from each other, and then how do they unify? When it comes to like... Um who belongs to a tribe? I'm talking about here in the U.S. I'm not talking about Mexico, right? Because we can talk about Mexico right after this. Um, you know, when I talked about the allotment period, so when the government gave allotment lands to natives, they created the blood quantum, like this person. Go ahead. When the government took lands from natives. Yeah, the reservation yeah, lands. Let's, and, let's, you let's, know, let's yeah. fix our vocabulary, right, yeah. to, to say what really happened, yeah, which is I mean, not, they, they, yeah. not that they, <laughs> you know, Gave lands. I, I agree. To, I agree. To yes. people but that's safe. the thing. Like, um, the point is, like, that's when blood quantum was created. And first off, before I continue, I don't agree with blood quantum. James knows. I believe in mm-hmm. if you can prove you're indigenous, you're indigenous no matter what, right? So it's like lineal uh, enrollment. So if somebody's like, you know, one sixteenth, whatever, because you know. But but at the same time, I believe that um, tribes have the right to create their own um, enrollment criterias. You know, mm-hmm. some people are like, you know, they get to their moms, some of their dads, and it, every tribe has their own version of, you know, uh, some some them blood quantum is to their parents, you know, their specific parents. And I think that's up to the tribe to decide. It's not up to, it's not up to me to say, oh, I don't like that, that way, 
that that tribe does it. Like that's not my decision. Mm-hmm. In Comanches, within my own tribe, I have my own my own criticisms about it, right? Because mm-hmm. we were a tribe that, you know, raided and then assimilated other tribes into our tribe, and even even non-natives into our tribe, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, the professor brought up the Henisaros. We we have Greg Gregorio Gonzalez on the show a couple of times, mm-hmm. and I agree. You know, the the Henisaros um, are not even recognized by the U.S. government, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes not even by local natives, which is really disgusting, you know? But I think, you know, there's, there's some people that are saying that Henisaros should have their own government. There's other people that are saying that Henisaros should be another band of the Comanches, which I agree. I mean, Comanches were the ones that caused that that situation for them. Why not, you know, you know make them into Comanches? I, I, I'm totally for that. If they want to, mm-hmm. they don't want that, and if they want to have their own government, that's fine. Even in our Comanche Constitution, it says no matter what your blood quantum, all Comanche are going to be treated the same, right? There's no we're like mm-hmm. oh I'm half, and there's some Comanches yeah. that are like oh I'm full blood, blah blah blah, and they sort of brag about it. But realistically, there's no such thing as a Comanche full blood because we were Shoshone and then we came down and raided, and then we took you know wives from you know like from other people, and we oh, we adopted the children of other tribes, and they became the warriors, and it was this, mm. this whole like. It's more complicated than Very just, complicated. Yeah, if, you go, yeah. if you go on my podcast and listen to the Comancheria episode, you can understand Comanche culture. And that's very unique to just our one tribe, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you can see that um, every tribe should have their own criteria. But I don't agree with the U.S. government's criteria of, like, blood quantum because eventually it's, like, it's very um, subtractive, right? Mm-hmm. Every kid you have yeah. is less and less, you know? But somehow in, in a weird way, like the white supremacist you know, are saying like, oh, if you have one drop of black blood, you're, you're not white. But somehow you, they subtract native right. blood. It's yep. really this weird math they had to legitimize themselves, their colonization, right? So we need to, you know, to, you know have that conversation totally separate. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm losing track. Well, here. I guess, no, I mean, <laughs> when you said that, I mean, you know, talking about some of the tenets for tribal critical race theory, I think the one of them, it's number two in the, you know, in, in Brave Boy's uh, 2005 article, uh, U.S. policies towards indigenous peoples are rooted in imperialism, yeah. white supremacy, and a desire for material gain. And I think that blunt quantum, it it kind of describes that desire for material gain where only uh, only whites or only, you know, white Americans can become, uh, can gain from from these laws. Whereas if, if the, the applies are almost, the, the law applies almost backwards to, non, to non-white Americans. Um, such as, you know, American Indians or um, even African Americans, it's, you know, it, it seems to work in opposite ways, you know, to support white supremacy. It yeah. also adds this this economic model on, right, where you are the one responsible to prove, right? You have to prove who right. you are rather than them having to disprove who you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what the blood quantum sounds like to me, too. It's, it's very yeah, similar to know, what goes on in the criminal the justice system. Yeah, they like my kids. For example, my kids are less than the one one eighth um, who's native and who's not. And, and Comanche is like everybody says you can prove your Comanche it doesn't matter your Comanche. But you know, one of the other points you you brought up, James, is is the colonization. Is like colonization exists. Is that point number one? Yeah, to, uh, the the tribal credit tenant number one is colon, colonization is endemic to society. So maybe we can talk about that word I, I, endemic. Yeah, I really like that point yeah. because I think, but at the same time, I, I kind of don't because I feel mm-hmm. like it doesn't distinguish between like colonization and settler colonization. Right. Like this yeah. is different between like how the British 
yeah. uh, colonized India. They, they didn't mm-hmm. try to make India their home, right? Mm-hmm. They're right. making their home here, right? right? right. And that's settler colonization. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm talking about. So we have this distinguish what type of colonization is happening in the U.S. Where the, where the Europeans are making this their home on top of our home and at the same time trying to get rid of our sovereignty, you know, and that's what's you know, happening in Mexico right now too, so, in Canada too, and, you know. Yeah, so can we maybe, um, can, we, can we dive a little bit deeper in, in what, what settler colonization looks like? Like, uh, like the U.S.? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you want to describe it? Like... Yeah. I mean, like, not, not many people know about native histories. Not many people know about native laws. Like, if you go to a reservation, you break a law. Like, do people even know what these laws are, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not native. Like, but that's another thing. Like, do, do the tribes have the right to, um, uh, have the, do they have the jurisdiction to persecute you for, the, the, you know, what does that look like, too, to, you know, the crimes you committed? This is why we have that trouble with the missing and murdered indigenous women, because mm-hmm. the tribes right. can't persecute these murderers and these rapists and the U.S. government, you know, is dragging their feet whenever a Native woman gets, gets killed. But why can't mm. tribes just have the sovereignty right. to, you know... The moment we have sovereignty to persecute non-Natives on, on Indian land is the moment that this, this government has fucked themselves. And I think they know that, yeah, right? Yeah. Because we're going to start persecuting corporations for, for their, 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 you know, exploding the land and, 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 you know, just people in general and the government. And I think the government... Yeah. They're not stupid, the U.S. government, you know what I'm saying? But... I think, but I think we should have a sovereignty to to persecute, you know, non-natives on native land. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing. This sounds yeah. like intersectionality, right? What's that Interne- uh, intersectionality? If I'm um, an indigenous woman, on <laughs> diminished. I'm trying to say like sovereignty has been granted by the U.S. government, but that's not right. It's the opposite. Diminished. Yeah. We have sovereign, sovereignty. Like, if you if you look in the early history of, of, of tribal hot sovereignty, we actually used to be like, oh, this dude, you know, killed my, you know, my mom, whatever, and we used to get them, and then the U.S. government would come and negotiate, you know, for his release, or whatever. But at a certain point, they were like, the government was like, you cannot do that, and I think, you know, that's when they were like, they have too much. So these treaties, the Indian treaties, are not giving, like I said, giving native sovereignty. They're actually taking away sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that, like I said, that intersectionality. So if an indigenous woman is, let's say, raped on native land by mm-hmm. someone who is not of that land, right? Then it's not within who's who's in charge of that investigation. Why? Well, 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 then it's not. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not um, local because you can't be local sheriff unless it's like the certain states have like where like local police can you know. But then it's usually like it has to be. State or federal, most likely federal. I guess I, I don't want to, um, you know, because I'm familiar with and you're, we're all, well, I know if we, we're all familiar with like Eve T- Eve's Tuck Eve's uh, Eve Tuck's work, Tuck and Yang on on the the metaphor piece that, you know, um, it's it's not like the we're saying that decolonization is just this mindset that we have to like choose like oh no we just need to change our our language and we need to change this and that it's like no it's i guess the relationship the so, like speaking about sovereignty is that you know if if the the united states and tribal um tribal groups recognize even that word is problematic recognized by the u.s government yeah um 
it's like it's a nation it's a nation talking to a nation that's yeah, what i think is. people don't understand it's like if the if mexico or if canada or if any other country in the world was telling the united states how we how we conduct our own business it's very much the same way and there's no other relationship like that in the united states like you cannot you cannot say well there's you know uh you know african american people they're they're not a nation within the united states they're part of the united states they're part of the colonial history but that's not the same for american indians so i think it um i think it's i don't know the intersectionality piece i think it it, it dilutes it too much where it's more serious than that it's i think when it comes to decolonization people would like to say that word like decolonization is not a metaphor i like yeah. that title because people think oh i'm going to decolonize i'm going to like you know, like learn this lang- indigenous language. I'm gonna learn this, you know, these knowledges, and I'm decolonizing. But when you know, like, so I'm gonna go back a little bit. So when I was at UC San Diego, when I got my bachelor's, um, there was this class we had. Uh, decolonize. It was literally called decolonization, right? There was no native studies, and they're trying to build a native <laughs> studies uh, program, and they, they made this class in, uh, decolonization. And for the final, right, they were like, the final was imagine what does decolonization look like to you. The Pueblo Revolt. Yeah. So the thing was like, <laughs> what, what does the colonization look like right now, right? So I, I, I made this thing where like it's one because there's over 500 tribes in this country, right? So one representative from each tribe in the Senate, you know, making laws on the land. But there's also like black people that were brought here from Africa. So they right. had to be. There has to be recognition that they can't go back and they shouldn't be pushed back. So maybe they should have representatives in the Senate and maybe in like another Senate yeah. work. Just like the US government now, maybe kind of, where there's like, <laughs> you know, uh, laws have to be passed through both, you know, like non-natives on this one and the natives and blacks on this one. Mm-hmm. But that, that's just an idea, right? Mm-hmm. But everybody else in this class brought like asinine ideas. They're like, I'm gonna make this song that's Stop. like no, no bullshit. Oh my they were God. like they were like this is this is a mixture between like feudal music and non and peasant music from Europe. And I was just like, what the fuck does this have to do with decolonization? <laughs> I brought this idea to like native people all around and I was like, what does decolonization look like to you? And I had some really, really smart like people that were on Harvard, you know, very smart native people that were like you're thinking too far ahead. I'm like, dude, if you don't know, wh- if we can, we don't know where we're going, how can we get there, mm-hmm. right? And that's what p- the reason for my podcast is like we need to talk about imagining decolonization, mm-hmm. not just as a native person, it's like a black person, as a non-native person. What does it look, what does it look like after the the settler colonial state, right? And yeah. people, that's, you're right. Like it's 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 a lot more than like, you know, it's it's actually a very serious conversation. People don't have these don't, they don't have these conversations. I, I think it's really important to have you know mm-hmm. so i think you're right rick and i think that the um the discomfort is the fact that that you pointed out was that if decolonization isn't a metaphor what it requires is dismantling the nation state form and that nation state form is our post-colonial reality yeah. in which the entire mm-hmm. world is carved into nation states and that's actually quite recent, right? After World War II, the world gets carved into nation states. And the first thing these nation states do to declare their sovereignty yeah, is yeah. to separate natives and migrants, right? Hmm. Whereas the settler colonial system defines citizenship as the national natives. Okay, who are the national natives? And who are the migrants? Hmm. And each nation their whole you know, system of sovereignty depends on that distinction. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to think about, okay, well, where do Native people fit into that idea of the national Native? Right? Yeah. And so, how are we positioned vis-a-vis so, -vis migrants? And um, so I think that, you know, decolonization would mean exploding the nation state form. And, you know, we are just too comfortable or embedded <laughs> in this system to, or to even see it as a system um, that's oppressive, right. right? And so, um, you know, that's what I just wanted to add that. So Dr. Virial, uh, I kind of, this is where I see this overlap again, this connection Rick talked about this idea of trying to come up with how do you decolonize? What mm -hmm. does that look like? Politically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how, how do you decolonize? How do you decolonize your mind? Like you have to have an image of that. Um, yeah. And when I was reading about Chicana feminism, um, that almost seemed to be like an extension of that exact thought. Like how do you decolonize? Um, and then it mm -hmm. sounded to me, and again, I'm no expert in this. That's, that's why we're blessed to have you here, um, is that you know, Chicana feminism seems to accept that these you can be both, that there's these multiple identities and that you're not one, that, that these boundaries are artificial and they all overlap, that your, your, your yeah. colonized identity is part of your identity as your indigenous identity is part of your identity. So I'd love to hear you guys discuss, you know, these, these differences or um, where the Chicana feminism, <laughs> excuse me, Chicana feminism and tribal critical race theory kind of overlap and divert. Um, and this seems like yeah. a place where they... I feel like Chicana feminism is building off of that tribal critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that what Chicana feminism offers is the idea of differential consciousness. And that's um, mm. Chela Sandoval's idea. And I think that there's many access points to decolonization. And it's mm -hmm. not an event, just like colonialism is an event. Mm -hmm. um, it's a process, right? And we're talking about um, unmooring ourselves, right, from 500 years of, of oppression, relations, uh, interactions, embeddedness in which cultures and identities are being fused, are being, you know, in this very dynamic and ongoing way. And so that's what Chicana feminism captures. But what they're trying to do with the decolonization piece is um, recognize the, the, the relationship between gender oppression and coloniality, right? And that there are different kinds of feminisms with, you know, within different tribes, right? The ways that women um, wield power within their communities and how they define feminism is gonna be different. But the idea of differential consciousness, of being able to recognize um, things that are wrong, right? In order to have an access point of change, of transformation. And so the development of that differential consciousness, we have to start with understanding our history, understanding what imperialism is, what co colonialism is, what it has done, um, how we are embedded within it, and what are our lines of flight, right? How are we going to get out of this? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, like I, I think that a, a good metaphor would be in Nuevo Mexico, where I'm from. Uh, they had this statue of Oñate, the colonizer Oñate, and um, they took it down last week. And so 
you know, there was this idea of the entrada, right? The grand entry of, Span of the Spanish colonizers and how they read these declarations and they declare everything theirs, right? So now Oñate gets it loaded onto a flatbed and carried off in a tractor. <laughs> and mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. there's this grand salida, right? Exit <laughs> of the colonizer, right? And so where's our salida? How are we getting out of this? You know, and so I think that um, that is going to happen in many different ways, in many different access points, including decolonizing our minds, decolonizing our education, exploding the nation, the nation state form, um, all kinds of ways. And they have to be happening simultaneously and allow for that diverse and dynamic oppositional consciousness to formulate right, and emerge. Patrick Wolf uh, emphasizes settler colonialism is a structure, not an event. So there, I think many, I'm, I'm generalizing, but there are many people that think that colonization happened and then now we're just, I guess, I guess post-colonial, post right? but there what, was a... What's that term on that article of colonial equivocation? Where it's like, I'm colonized too. Is, is that what it is? Uh, I'm not. <laughs> I had a whole sure. PowerPoint. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but I'll, I'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I just, article. It's, it's a I, good start. Yeah, there there was a joke when I was I was pursuing my master's degree. Um, there was this joke of a, a post-colonial. Some of my professors would be like, "Well, when did they leave?" There, there was always the. <laughs> That was always the joke. Oh, did, did they leave? Did we get our land back? Um, we're never leaving. So we're not, well. <laughs> um, what, what am I going to do? Go back to Ireland? I don't got no family there anymore. Native people talk about that. Yeah, people talk about that. Yeah. So I think, I, I think right. that's a good point that, that Suzanne brought up is that then um, where does that leave uh, the, the, new, the new identity American? Because uh, there's, uh, have you read the book, The Playing Indian? By Philip Deloria, it, it describes yes. the yeah, it describes the 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 American identity as being non-indigenous. Everything that it's not, yeah, it's not British, it's not Native American. So it becomes this. Uh, they describe he describes it as uh, it's un it's un it's an unfinished identity. Yeah. I'm enjoying this conversation. I hope you are because I I definitely am loving. I'm loving it. Oh okay. And I'm really <laughs> enjoying learning about you, Rick. No, oh, thank I you. Wait till you start um, yeah. watching your podcast. Oh, yeah, I, I actually look YouTube forward to like yeah, uh, corresponding with you and working with you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I hope you'll see our film Frontera, Revolt and, oh, sure. and Re okay. Rebellion in the yeah. Rio Grande. It's a cartoon. It's 20 minutes long um, about the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. How important is it that people share their stories? Their stories of coming to terms with their identity to stories of claiming their identity, reclaiming their identity, um, defining their own identity. But how important is the sharing of stories? Um, we had on the podcast from the last season, um, there were two stories as um, women found themselves and learned to define themselves as Chicanas, as a conscious decision. And then we brought this question up in our class and hopefully we'll include some of their stories in here with their permission. Mm -hmm. Um, but their stories were very different, but they had those overlapping themes. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, how, how important is sharing your story to the community and, and broadening the community and awareness? Well, of course, story has a very important uh, place within Native communities. Story is our our place of origin. It's how we preserve our histories. It's how we pass them on and transmit them. 
uh, story tells of all of our relations, you know, with um, the natural world, um, with our histories, and um, stories are what makes us human. That's yeah. what makes us human. Yeah, I agree. And so oh, I think sorry. that, um, you know, some people would disagree with that, but that's what I have learned, right, from my relationship with Pueblo people. Um, I, you know, recognize my Pueblo heritage. My first identity is as a Nuevo Mexicana, right, and that has Pueblo roots and also, you know, has other indigenous roots within Coahuila or, or um, northern Mexico. And, um, you know, I have multiple influences, right, that have formed my identity and multiple experiences. And that has formed my story, my testimonial. And um, these stories are always changing because I am a living being that's going through this world and I'm changing and I'm learning. And it's never gonna, my story is always gonna be different. Right? I'm adding to my story as I move through the world. Right? Okay. So yes, I definitely think that stories are important um, to helping us find a way to a path, right? To um, be comfortable with ourselves, to have pride right, in who we are and to understand that we are always coming to consciousness that decolonization is a process and that our stories are in the making. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the story is in the telling. And so the story will always be different every time that you tell it. And that's the beauty of it. Right? So yes, stories I think are very generative um, and important um, for others to hear, you know, so that they can draw on your experience and also start to form their own narrative, right? Because that's how we understand our experiences through the stories that we create. And when you transform your story, when you change your story, you also change your, the way you feel about yourself, you know? Um, so I think that it's very important, as you said. I, I made a podcast, and one of the reasons why to people, for people to share the stories if you hear the podcast, it's mostly people telling their stories, you know? Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. um, even James has a story about his family, and I, talk, I bring that up on the podcast, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's very important for people to know, you know, what's going on. Because if all you hear is, like, the numbers and, like, data and, and corporate news, you're, you're going to, like, you know, miss out on what's going on. And I, I James and his family are very very important to me when it comes to what's going on here in San Antonio because he's like a Mission Indian family that people are ignoring, right? Mm -hmm. And there's like other people that are, I don't even consider the native, like they're, they're using the, the, the native identity to exploit, exploit that for mm -hmm. money while they're silencing his family. And it's like people don't recognize that. And man, I'm always out there campaigning for his family. Yeah. Always, <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not even part of his family. I'm like, look, there's these people. They're native. They're yes, not recognized. Okay. Even, even from our, 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 our even for the uh, our other guest, uh, Gregorio and his Henisaros. I, I'm always like, hey, man, they're native. You know, like there's people here that needs to be, <laughs> you know, recognized and have rights too, and have sovereignty, and they don't have it, right? So, 
but what you know, I think that can be done with decolonization and you know even with other legal means. So, yeah, I want to end with um, maybe some maybe some calls to action. Maybe I don't know if that's too bleh, but I don't know, just something, just because I know that many times people hear things, we read things, we see things, but it's hard to say. Well, what do I do? That's like the big thing. Well, what do I do? And and you know maybe we can each of you can mention like one one thing or something that'll help um even if it's just hey read this book like something that would just help people move at least you know kind of like mm -hmm. a, a small liberal step forward um or you can just do something else i don't know just i think just kinda... i think when it comes to you brought dna test all right so i don't know i'm gonna get into it too much but i would say read kim Talbert's. Uh, oh, Native, that's a great book. Yeah, Native American mm -hmm. DNA. We had Kim yeah. Talbert mm -hmm. here. Me and James yeah. had the honor yeah. to have Kim Talbert. She came to my house. Yeah. I'm sh I was like yeah. starstruck. Kim yep. Talbert came to my house. <laughs> yeah. And um, she came to my house. We talked <laughs> yeah. about that book, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think people's cultures are their like, backbone, you know? And I think and I really try not to talk about culture because there's over 500 in the U.S. when it comes to indigenous, right? But I think... Like even even like Europeans, they have their own culture. Even like there's there's even like indigenous Europeans, like the Sami tribe, and like I think it's Nor Norwegian. You know, they are fighting against the Norwegian government. So the, the, even even in Europe, there's like uh, indigenous people that are fighting against colonization. You know, so I think mm -hmm. um, I think pe even Europeans should embrace their culture. But the the one thing they shouldn't embrace is con they should not embrace is colonization, right? Mm -hmm. They should be like maybe us colonization, you know, with colonization, you know, colonizing other people is wrong. Maybe we should undo it. Maybe we should support native people that are undoing it, and you know, support you know native cultures and native languages and in their programs. So mm -hmm. my my opinion, more point of view. Yeah. I mean, you, even like you brought up the the, the point about. Um, well, and substituting in words. So, right, like with DACA right now, right? Like when I think about, um, you know, DACA, this idea that people would say they should go back to Mexico, okay, right? Yeah. Like nobody has ever said to me, you should go back to Ireland, right? Because first of all, I don't even know if I'm Irish. I have an Irish last name, so I'm assuming I'm Irish, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't know what my grandparents were. I don't know what my great-grandparents were because oh, I, mm -hmm. I have none of that, right? But nobody's ever said, you know, go back to Ireland. Or, you know, black people have been told well, if you hate America so much, go back to Africa, right? And I feel like that's like, we, we had this grace, right? Like indigenous peoples never told us, go back to Europe, go back to England, go back to Ireland, go back to Germany. And when you put those, those European words in there, it, I feel like that understanding of like DACA becomes very different, right? Mm -hmm. What you're yeah. saying to that person, like if you say, you know, if somebody says to me, you know, they should go back to Mexico, and I were to say, oh, well, you know, my friend who's indigenous said you should go back to Ireland. Yes, right. <laughs> it, it it makes you point out, like, saw, oh crap, I don't know anybody there. I, I have no somebody, connection yeah, there. Yeah, I saw somebody yesterday that that was white posting, oh, if you're DACA, just apply to be a, a U.S. citizen. Why don't you just apply right? It was a no. stupid person. <laughs> U.S. citizens have no, they they have very little knowledge. Um, about the immigration system exactly. or about the refugee system because they've never had to use that system. Yeah, yeah. that's and, what I mean. When we, um, when if we... you're, if of course you you marry um, somebody from another country, then all of a sudden you're thrown into it and you realize how difficult it really is. Or you can be like, yeah, an but, yeah, an immigrant have an ITIN number and pay taxes, but yet not have mm -hmm. benefits of like having programs. 
Exactly. You know? So exactly. it's just like you're paying taxes. I think it's like ten ten billion dollars that that immigrants pay into taxes, but they, they can't get into, they can't have state or like federal programs like help like welfare. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're supporting the gov- the, the economy, but not having the benefits of having the programs. Mm-hmm. It's stupid. Yes, exactly. Well, okay. I think that um, you should be okay so there's a few issues that have come up like the the boundaries between cultural appreciate appreciation and reclamation and cultural appropriation right and i think um you know chicken there's a fine line there and chickenex indigeneity um sometimes crosses it you know in problematic ways um but i i do think that the search is important and also, um, but it needs to be respectful, as yeah. you note. And um, as far as culture, we we've often have this popular idea of culture as being different. And um, every everyone has culture, including white people. Um, in fact, their culture is quite powerful because it's the dominant one in this whole nation. And I think that, um, of course, the reason why, you know, they think of themselves as not having culture sometimes is because they've never been taught to see themselves as part of a culture. Yeah. And that's the culture of whiteness. And um, so, you know, recognizing your whiteness, recognizing the privileges that that, you know, advances, um, recognizing that some European and other, you know, folks were able to become white, um, whereas other immigrant populations were continuously defined by their difference, um, you know, is defined by that culture of whiteness and white supremacy yeah. that's at the root of our national culture. Um, but it, uh, that's not to say that <laughs> you can't recover um, your Irish roots that you can't start exploring that, reading about it, um, connecting with it in some way, traveling there and learning about it mm-hmm. and um, re- trying to reconnect with it. And that search, of course, should be respectful, you know. Um, I, I don't even know that's what I am. Between, so. <laughs> it's like I said, it's a guess. You know, be aware of the lines between cultural appropriation and appreciation. Mm-hmm. But if you feel a connection there, you should explore it. Um, and I think that that search is authentic and that it's important and that it's real, um, but always, you know, being reflective, you know, of where you are in that line. <laughs> but, you know, culture is something that all of us are learning all the time. We're making it. We're making history all the time. There's no such thing as not having culture. <laughs> and so um, I just wanted to make that idea clear I think that's a good that, that's a good topic for for another podcast maybe we'd be interested mm-hmm. in talking about whiteness <laughs> in another one well i'm a, i'm an anthropologist and so uh, culture is my <laughs> my category to think okay. about um but uh yeah i've been recently uh really digging into whiteness because mm-hmm. i'm i think thinking about race is really important and its intersections with gender, colonialism, class, um, all other kinds of vectors that influence our lives. Uh, but we can't understand race without understanding whiteness. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Right? Suzanne? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a good book to start with is White Fragility. Uh, there's another uh-huh. one by uh, by uh, by Robin DiAngelo. There's another one yeah. called Strange Tribes by um, Hardigan. And um, How to Be an Anti-Racist is also really good by Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah, I um, I think one of the things is the kind of work that I do. I see other cultures very up close. I work in people's homes. Um, mm-hmm. I work very close. I, people forget that I'm there. I spend hours in their homes, in their personal lives. I know what they're, what's inside their cabinets and how they keep their drawers and how they feed their children. And um, so I see all of this in a very close way that I know other people don't have access to. Other people like me mm-hmm. don't have access to this. They haven't seen um, the stories and lives that I have. So, you know, I mm-hmm. growing up, you know, like I definitely was taught that, you know, welfare moms were, um, you know, lazy, lazy black people who were just sucking off the system, right? That's the that's the narrative that's that's constructed. But as soon as I started going into the homes and working with these families, what I saw was very, very different. Um, and it was, you know, it was very painful to deal with and to try to go back and tell people who I know have these beliefs, you know, but they haven't seen what I've seen. They haven't heard those stories. And that's why I've come to love hearing people's stories because it's the only thing that really shows the truth um, behind what's I happened that, and, and, and takes away these um, yeah. very generalized, this, this, very inaccurate perceptions. I, I think getting, you're absolutely right, that getting to know people, hearing their stories, being patient, listening, is anti-racist praxis. That's anti-racist praxis because we've all inhabited and adopted racist ideas by the very fact that we live in a racialized society. And uh, we are in the process of unmooring ourselves and from and disconnecting ourselves from these racist notions. And it's a, going to be a lifelong process because we have been fed this <laughs> since we were, you know, infants. Um, so I think that uh, if we're, I think that's a, a perfect way to think about what it means or how we can, for doing a call to action, um, work towards becoming anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And um, so that would be one. My, my other call to action would, of course, be to get 45 out of office. <laughs> yeah. um, the other call of action Definitely. would be to um, stay alive by um, staying if you can, far away from um, the virus and not spreading the virus and not um, and trying to stay healthy. I think that that's our very first priority, right? And to help each other in that. Um, and also to contribute to Native organizations, contribute to Black organizations, to immigrant organizations that are doing that day-to-day political work of um, helping our communities to thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's my call to action. And of course, always keeping your mind open, always reading, always educating yourself, always contributing beautiful things to your story and drawing on 
um, the strength of our ancestors and all our relations, caring for the earth, caring for each other, um, be having a collaborative spirit and, um, you know, moving forward with that. Always questioning. Rick, any, mm-hmm. any final words there? Mm, I think, um, no, it's a good conversation. I think we need to just, um, we're good. <laughs> yeah, we're good. We're good. <laughs> All right. Actually, yeah, she, you know, Great. Dr. Via Real brought good points. I think, you know, we need, just need to um, educate ourselves. And, you know, if somebody challenges your views, don't get mad about it. Just, you know, um, see where other people are coming from. And then mm-hmm. that's it, man. Like, why even, like, argue about it? I mean, like, why even, like, death threats and, you know, mm-hmm. about it? But, yeah, mm-hmm. we're good. It's a good conversation. Thank I, you. I think for my peers, yeah. it's ask, don't tell, listen, don't talk. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's sure. a good advice for everyone. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you all you for inviting James, any me. Any final I words? Really no, I'm good. Conversation. Okay. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for inviting me. It was wonderful to to share space and time with all of you. And um, I look forward to future conversations. Awesome. Likewise. Okay. Thank you so much. Please, yeah. Please don't hang up right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when we end it. Yeah. <laughs> We want to give our gratitude to Dr. Villarreal and Rick for sharing their valuable time with us and their excellent insights. I think we might be the first person to have a guest, so we're going to have the coolest podcast. Two, two, two guests. Two guests. That's an A++. Two guests. So not only did we have like cool discussion in our class and some good stories from our classmates, then we got two like awesome guests. Um, so our podcast wins. High five, James. Yeah, we won. All right, so that's all for this episode. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you discovered our show. That's all for now, but we'll see you in the next episode of Transformative Talk. Bye. And also the Comic Bubble Podcast. (laughs) All right. Yes, that one too.